It is Monday, May 23rd, 2022, and you are listening to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you had a constructive and fruitful weekend, got in some good R&R, ready to hit the ground running on another busy week. We know that we are, and we've still got plenty to bring to you from our recent, most recent show, which you can see every Friday night at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS Channel 5.1. Also want to make sure you know that if you have the PBS app, download it on your phone or tablet, you can stream all of our content anytime so encourage you to do that. All right, we had a great group of line opinion panelists in our most recent show. I want to remind you who that is. We've got Laura Sanchez, an attorney and line regular. Also regular, Merritt Allen of Vox Optima PR. And Dan Boyd is the Capitol Bureau Chief at the Albuquerque Journal. And last week we got news that the Department of Education had released their new draft plan to address the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit. If you're not aware, we've been talking about this a lot over the last couple of years, but a court ruled that the state is not living up to its constitutional obligation to provide a quality education to all of its students. In particular, it identified some vulnerable communities that are underserved. These are Native American uh, students. These are special needs students. These are English language learners, among others. And so there's been a lot of movement on this. In fact, that's part of the reason we saw the push for the big raises for teachers this past year. But there is a lot of work to be done. In fact, in 2020, the governor filed to have that lawsuit dismissed, pointing to some of the efforts already underway. But the judge denied that request to dismiss and even pointed to things like uh, the broadband problems that we know we have. Uh, And so students during the pandemic didn't have access to Internet they needed and some of these vulnerable communities still didn't have laptops and other technology they needed to provide that quality education. So a lot of work still to be done and also factor into that that this draft plan is a way overdue for some people, especially tribal leaders who've been asking for this for a while. It was supposed to be released in December before the most recent legislative session, but now we're getting it here in May. There is the chance for the public to weigh in on the plan and uh, change it as they feel it should to address these problems. Um, But still a lot to come out of all of this. There's information in the description on how you can see the draft report and how you can provide your feedback to it as well. Let's get some thoughts and feedback from the line opinion panel. Let's start by introducing this week's virtual line panel. First off, I want to let you know I am not Gene Grant. In fact, executive producer Kevin McDonald filling in for him again this week as he looks to bounce back from illness. But we are glad to have attorney Laura Sanchez back with us. She's one of our regulars. Also another regular, Merritt Allen from Vox Optima Public Relations. And welcome back to Dan Boyd, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Albuquerque Journal. And we want to start today with a look at the new draft plan to address the Yazi Martinez lawsuit. 
That's the 2018 court ruling that found the state had failed to properly educate more than two-thirds of K-12 students, specifically English language learners, Native Americans, and special needs students. The long-awaited plan released last week aims to address those shortcomings, setting goals for graduation rates along with math and reading proficiency, among other things. And want to start out, Laura, with you. Are these goals ambitious enough, especially considering the state's plan was released years after it was supposed to be completed? Well, thanks for that question, um, Kevin. And I think, uh, uh, I, of course, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to criticize the timing of when this was released. There was also initially supposed to be a release that was supposed to happen um, during the session uh, or a little bit prior to the session, is my December, understanding. December, I believe. Yeah, December. And so uh, for sure, there's definitely critics out there about the release of this. But one thing that I think we can see is that the, you know, like it or not, the the uh, education department took its time and the secretary took its time to um, look very specifically at these different segments of um, our most vulnerable students to make sure that there was uh, additional resources um, uh, put into the system for them at a time when we're um, we have budget surpluses and we're able to actually um, increase teacher pay as a state and we're actually able to uh, provide additional resources. I, I'm glad to see that they did focus in more specifically into those vulnerable populations. Um, when you look at the numbers of the graduation rates in particular, you can see a huge drop off from um, those in the populations being, you know, Native American, um, students of color, poor, you know, low income, but in particular also uh, special education has a huge drop off. The others are in their 70%. Special education drops down to the 60, 68% level in terms of graduation rates. And it's very important to put money back, resources back into that segment of the population. I think you're going to see certainly the plaintiffs continue to have um, concerns about how this is going to uh, play out, what kind of plan implementation wise there will be, and what kind of oversight there will be. But I think this is a good start for them and an important one to, to just hit the ground running with. Yeah, and, and just to build off what you said, among the overall goals, a 15% increase in graduation rates. And within that, as you pointed out, Laura, to keep all of those subgroups within about 5% of each other so there aren't those discrepancies. In addition, increasing reading and math proficiency by about 50% for those vulnerable groups, all of this by 2025. And Dan, goals are great but that game plan of how to achieve those goals is something else entirely. Did you see enough of that substance behind how we're going to get to those goals? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's some, some good goals, some ambitious goals there. I, I think trying to, to make some of these changes you know, overnight is probably not likely to happen. I mean, it's going to take, uh, like Laura suggested, you know, these targeted investments, but then also carrying them through over time. One, one thing in the report that caught my eye was just Kind of the breakdown of the the teaching profession and, and does that reflect the student population uh i think they said you know native students make up 10 percent of the state's uh, enrollment and uh native teachers are only two percent um and kind of similar breakdown when it comes to hispanic students so i think kind of trying to to get new teachers in, in the pipeline you know get them the training um you know get them interested in being a teacher and having a you know livable wage th those things will take time i mean it could take years to kind of build that up. But I think if you don't have a roadmap, then then certainly it won't happen. Um, I think also with the pandemic, I mean, that's been that's made it hard as well to meet some of these goals. And obviously, a lot of students and, and teachers and families who've had a hard time with the distance learning and 
uh, now trying to get back to normal, but uh, you know, it, it's kind of a new normal. So I think all those things have um, you know added, added to the challenge of, of addressing this issue and, and the court ruling. Yeah, and we've talked a lot on this show about those teacher raises, right? In the latest state budget, the governor and legislators significantly increased pay for teachers, and they want to increase that diversity by about 20% of teachers in the classroom. Uh, but is that money going to be enough? I mean, to, again, to say uh, that we want to increase that diversity in the teachers is, is great, but we've been talking about teacher shortages for years. Part of that may be solved by these raises, but uh, if not, what are the big ideas we can come up with to attack, attract and retain new teachers uh, that reflect the classroom merit? What do you think about that? I think there are so many challenges to uh, that exist administratively to uh, simply licensing and bringing onboarding new teachers and APS. Uh, it can take uh, up to 18 months to become licensed once you complete your education. So that drag, that's uh, three semesters uh, just to get a new teacher on board. Then you're on an annual contract and you have to compete for your job. So why would you stay? You know, you get you get into a you get into a school, you um, get a rapport, you like the faculty, and then you're thrown back out into the pool, and you find out you know you may be um, on the east side, close to your house, on tramway, and suddenly the only job that's available for you um, at the end of the school year in the coming August, next coming August, is out is out at Volcano Vista. So that's um, a tremendous challenge. Just the uh, uh, as an army friend of mine likes to call it, the administrivia uh, that puts up barriers to uh, keeping uh, good teachers and aides and counselors. Uh, and then, you know, this uh, this lawsuit was not something that came up. You know, this isn't, you know, just in the last 10 years that this has come up. We've got at least five decades of poor performance uh, uh, nationally and decades of inertia and indifference. That's that's what uh, brought this to bear. And this poor this poor performance has impacted our uh, our workforce, our economy. It's contributed to our poverty and our drug use. I think so many of the problems endemic to our state start in our incredibly poor performing education system. So when we talk about you know, is this enough? Are the goals tough enough? I think we really have to talk about implementation. And uh, is PED uh, capable? And are the school districts going to be capable of implementing these changes uh, in a measured way uh, with accountability, with milestones? Do they have the resources and the oversight to, to achieve it? Yeah, and, and another big challenge, which we touched on a lot, not necessarily so far today, but is the internet access, the broadband uh, that we need across the state, huge infrastructure uh, around that as well. And so I'm curious, Dan, you mentioned it earlier, these are things that are gonna take a long time to accomplish. Merritt, you just um, uh, alluded to the implementation and the accountability. So Dan, how do you balance that in the short term between showing progress and yet also understanding that we are going to solve this over generations. Well, I, I think, you know, obviously the resources have to be there, but just uh, I think I think we've seen that just throwing money at the issue isn't enough, that you need a plan and you need to do things differently or else it's going to, um, you know, like Merritt talked about, just be continuing the same pattern. I, I also think, you know, that right now the state does have a lot of uh, money, obviously revenue coming in, but that's not a given five, 10 years from now. So, you know, 
is the state going to make the commitment to to continue these programs even when we do see those uh, an inev inevitable kind of you know revenue downturn and laura we've got just about a, a minute left but again this idea of balancing expectations with this commitment. We'll talk some more about maybe what could be done with some of that money we're seeing in now, but how, especially when we see the delays in this draft plan even coming out, uh, there's gonna be a public comment period on this, but how do people feel like there's that accountability in place in this? I think it's really important for people that are interested in this issue to weigh in. I mean, not just organized groups who I think are aware of what's happening and are used to putting in um, comments perhaps on when agencies release reports and so forth, but um, you know, there should be parents that are concerned about this. There should be other groups, local governments, tribal governments. Uh, this is a statewide issue um, and definitely something that I think all of us have a stake in. But you know, to the issue that you asked Dan about with regard to um, infrastructure and broadband, there's such a huge tech gap when you look at uh, these particular populations that are vulnerable. And there is, uh, let's not forget, federal funding that is coming out from the infrastructure bill related to broadband expansion and assistance um, from the Fed. So it's important for the state to get their act together in terms of applying for some of that funding, which is often formula funding that they can then use to try to um, expand that, that infrastructure and make sure that students are connected. Definitely. Much more on that formula funding question to come here on the show. But we mentioned that uh, public comment and the PED, Public Education Department, is accepting comments on this draft plan through June 17th. Just head to the website to find out where you can get involved in that process. Super important that we all do that. We'll be right back for another discussion with our line opinion panel this time about how the state's reliance on fossil fuels impacts our shifts toward renewables. As you can tell, lots of things still to be done and accomplished, and all of that takes money, of course. And this week we got some good news on that front. The latest revenue projections for New Mexico show a potential $440 million surplus over what we had this year, which was already way up. Uh, and so the questions will be out there in terms of what we do with that money. The question's always around... How do we address this fact that so much of that is still due to extractive industries like oil and gas, which are still going gangbusters down in the Permian Basin, but we know that the governor and the state making it a priority to move to renewable energy sources. So a conundrum that we still have to deal with. And uh, so wanted to jump back in with the line opinion panel, get some thoughts on how lawmakers should be looking at that money. And uh, in terms of recurring funds versus non-recurring funds, how we plan for this when we know it won't always be this flush. And we know that we are trying to make this very difficult transition without a real equal replacement for the oil and gas industry. So lots to dive into here and a great group to do it. Let's head right back to the line opinion panel. Hello again to our line opinion panelists and all of you as well. The state's budget surplus is growing faster than expected. Thanks to Dan Boyd for the reporting from you and the journal on all of this. Revenue for the current budget year is now expected to be more than $440 million higher than projected just this last December. 
Oil production is a big reason why, along with a boost in personal income tax revenue. And inflation is also pushing gross receipts tax revenue up. On the surface, this has to be good news for the state and the coffers, but now comes the task of figuring out how to use all of that money. Dan, have you heard anything about where lawmakers are leaning when it comes to spending this influx of cash? Well, this is kind of the newest uh, influx. You know, already um, during this year's session, there was there was a big uh, windfall of new revenue. Some of that was used to uh, give rebates to taxpayers, you know, to uh, teacher raises. And, and yet even it, looks, it appears that even more money is going to be coming in. Um, I, I think we have learned, you know, it, it's been a roller coaster ride these last few years. So so we'll see where it goes from here. But but this is kind of unprecedented even uh, to have legislative folks tell me this kind of level of revenue, these, these numbers we're seeing. But I, I think, as you mentioned, Kevin, it does kind of, um, you know, on the one hand, revenues are way up. But on, on the other hand, you know, uh, folks around New Mexico are dealing with higher gas prices, higher prices at the store. So um, so I think state officials and legislators are going to have to figure out, you know, yeah, we have all this money, but but a lot of folks are hurting out there. And and what's the best way to put this to use and, and to really address some of these uh um, you know, these serious issues facing New Mexico because the money's probably not going to last forever. Right. And we know specifically that the, the federal influx around the infrastructure definitely not going to last forever in these debates between recurring costs, non-recurring costs. But Laura, I have to ask, did the special session rebate uh, heyday set a dangerous precedent now with more money coming in that folks will expect another round of rebates and should that be a consideration, do you think? Well, I certainly agree with you. It sets a, a precedent, or at the very least, it sets a, an expectation that there will be, um, you know, a use for that for those funds in that way. So, but the real trick is, you know, how do you deal with um, a, an influx when, when you know that you can't? I mean, and not that it doesn't get done, but you really shouldn't be spending money on things that um, are recurring, things that continue to either grow or continue to, um, you know, to need funding going forward. Ideally, when you have an influx that's temporary, you want to spend it on things that are temporary so that the, the you know, the amount that comes in matches what the type of service you're trying to provide. So it isn't ongoing. But we have so many needs that are ongoing right now. It is, um, I think it's almost irresponsible for them not to consider some of those, uh, some of those projects and those things, areas. We just finished talking about education being a huge area and an important one in terms of across the board affects so many other areas like crime, you know, economic development, workforce solutions and all of that. So I think it, it's really difficult. We're gonna probably see a lot of proposals given that it's a 60 day session coming up. Um, and, in, and in an election year, of course, you're gonna hear a lot of noise about how the, those funds should be used, but we have to be cautious and not sort of go out and spend, 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 spend and end up you know, being in a really tough place in terms of cutting services once those funds um, you know, go back down because we expect that's exactly what's going to happen. For sure. And Merritt, again, you've got this push-pull of people who are feeling it in their wallet every day when they go to the grocery store or the gas pump, and that's where those rebates are, are a possibility to help folks. Another thing we've talked about before are the gas taxes, and we know that the governor encouraged the president to get rid of the federal gas tax for a while. doesn't appear as that's going to happen, but there's the state gas tax as well. Should they be looking at that if we're not going to look at rebates, do you think? 
Absolutely. I think our entire tax code has to be looked at, uh, in particular GRT. That's been on the agenda session after session and nothing's really been done about it. And I think that really goes to a larger issue, thinking strategically for the legislature and the state. Does a part-time unpaid legislature really serve the complex needs of our state in the 21st century? And I would say no. And I think we could also look to a real success of previous legislatures, and that would be the Early Childhood Investment Fund. While we have these surplus funds, why don't we look at an investment fund to fund a paid legislature? a paid professional legislature that would attract a different type of candidate, one that's not independently wealthy or retired or whatever reason, some, and really take the time to look at these issues. You can't get it done in 90 days every two years. That's why we had two special sessions this year. We need um, more time to address uh, the issues of our state. and. I don't think that's um, asking for more government or, or larger government, but I think we need more time and a professional legislature to look at these issues like GRT and tax rebates and also uh, the long-term impacts of, we are gonna be moving away from fossil fuels in the next 10, 20, 30 years. The large energy companies have said this. We have the opportunity to transition to renewables. There is no plan. This is something the legislature and the administrations in the future are going to have to address, and they're not gonna do it in 90 days every two years. You bring up a great point, Merritt, and, and Dan, I'm wondering, you touched a little bit about this in your reporting, but what are the innovative ideas to manage some of these things we are talking about? I did remember reading something about maybe the idea of endowments with that early childhood investment fund so that maybe that starts to create some money that builds on itself. Uh, I hear rumors that Patricia Lundstrom may look at doing away with income tax altogether, at least pushing for that. What sort of out-of-the-box ideas do you expect to see come out of this and with this opportunity coming up in a 60-day session? Yeah, the, um, the, the Legislative Finance Committee Director David Abbey suggested setting up more endowments, maybe even one for the Opportunity Scholarship Program, you know, that, that covers a lot of tuition and fees for for certain certain higher education students and the legislature has done some of that already setting up uh, uh the late former representative larry laranyaga setting up a rainy day fund so some of these ideas to maybe set aside some of this money uh i think certainly it's true that uh oil is, is higher than ever it makes up uh 40 of the state budget oil and gas revenues uh and it's not going to last forever we don't know when that date is but for now certainly the uh the the primary stance seems to be let's you know let's uh benefit from this while we can, maybe set aside some of these monies. Uh, and scary thing is there doesn't seem to be anything right now from a revenue perspective to to kind of replace oil uh, and gas when those do kind of weigh. I mean, there's renewable energies and other parts of the industry, but nothing that's going to make up 40% uh, of the state's revenue base. For sure. And long been the, the challenge here in New Mexico. Laura, is there something we can be looking at here given that, right? Because the irony, again, is that as people are feeling the pain every time they go to the pump, that same pain is filling up the state coffers. Uh, we know there is a desire to get to more renewable energy. Uh, is there a way to use this money to help bridge the gap between the two? What more should we be doing on that front? 
Sure. So I think there's a lot that could be done to to try to bridge that gap. I mean, we have an opportunity to look to, especially what other states have done successfully um, to try to transition. But, you know, New Mexico really is at the forefront of a lot of uh, policy um, direction in terms of trying to move to, um, you know, less carbon fuel um, or I'm sorry, less uh, less fossil fuel. Um, less carbon intensity as we as we work towards the goals of what the ETA was. But when it comes to, you know, our, our certainly our rising gas prices, some of that, obviously, geopolitical issues are affecting that, um, also affecting supply, um, supply chain issues, the pandemic's been a factor. Um, but as we look at also what other states are going through right now, we can learn from it. In California, I was just there last week, and in Northern California, and the price of the pump is just unbelievable if you rent a car there and i was you know i'm fortunate enough to be able to um be able to get there and rent a car uh but it's it was painful and we just can't possibly sustain those levels of um, gas prices here in new mexico so it's important that our lawmakers do consider what we can do for folks who are really struggling right now um, not just with gas but also just to keep keep food on the table well, no doubt we'll have a lot more to talk about this as some of those plans come into fruition. We're headed into interim committee season where a lot of these things are talked about. We'll keep track of all that. Thank you all for your important feedback on that discussion. We'll check back in with all of you in a little less than 15 minutes to talk about the record-setting fire burning near Las Vegas and what the governor asked for during a recent call with President Biden. Bringing you lots of great line conversation in this episode. And if you're looking for something a little different, we encourage you to listen to our most recent episode, very much focused on climate change and the wildfire threat that we continue to battle on a daily basis here in New Mexico with the state's now largest wildfire still burning up around Las Vegas and Mora. That's the Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fire. Uh, so be sure to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. All right, so we always start each week with our line opinion panelists on Facebook Live, where we give them a chance to talk about some of the things that have caught their eye this week that we just don't have time to talk about in the show. But the great thing is here on this podcast, we do have time to bring that to you. And this week we had a theme going. We are, as you probably know, uh, in primary election season, big time, early voting has started. And so if you haven't already, get out there and vote. There's some big changes you may or may not be aware of. But for the first time, you are able to not only same-day register, but you can change your party affiliation uh, so you can participate in one of the party's primary elections. And then you'll be able to change that back uh, So for the general election. And this is important because uh, the largest uh, affiliation in the state right now are declined to state. And in the past, they would have been locked out of the primary process. So that's just one of the issues we bring up with the line opinion panel. Lots of interesting information for you. And so let's dive right back in with our line opinion panel. Good morning, everybody. I'm Kevin McDonald here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists joining me on Zoom again this week. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, we always like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds with us this week. Laura Sanchez, let's start with you. What's uh, catching your eye this week out there in the headlines? 
Sure. Well, I mean, it's election time. Uh, early voting is starting, um, I think, has started already, at least at uh, some of the Bernalillo County Clerk's offices, and then it starts at various locations um, this weekend. So that's always on my mind. Um, and so we've got a bunch of very interesting races, but you know, I'm I'm of the opinion that you have to, well, at least for my preference, I like people who have some uh, experience in the in the job and are are good uh, public servants and not necessarily just good campaigners. And so I think there's some real differences out there. And in particular, I'll highlight a couple um, that that have caught my eye. And one of them is the county assessor's office, uh, Bernalillo County uh, Assessor. We've got uh, somebody who's who's run before for other seats, um, Damian Lara, and then we have somebody who's relatively unknown um, in terms of the political sphere, but sphere, but has been in uh, the public, you know, in the public sector for a long time, in the clerk, in the assessor's office, excuse me, for a long time, and that's the uh, the other person in the race who is uh, last name Saiz, and so um, that's who I'm backing. I think he's got he's great. And then, of course, the attorney general's office is another really good example. <laughs> I think we've, well, in my mind, there's a big difference between the two candidates that are running for the Democratic nomination. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing how that one shakes up. And I hope that uh, Raul does a very good job on that. Yeah, so, so much going on. And of course, it's a good time to remind folks, too, that uh, if you are declined the state, uh, you can same day voter register and pick a political party. Uh, and so this process is not closed off, which is good because some of these races, even some that you're talking about, Laura, may be really decided or a big portion of it decided in the, in the primaries. Welcome also to Dan Boyd, of course, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Albuquerque Journal. And I think we got a bit of a theme on our one more things. You've also got some election notes. Yeah, I was going to stick with the election theme. Obviously, we've been busy doing stories on different races, um, you know, profiles on candidates, putting together Q and A's and all of that. So I wanted to uh, give a shout out to uh, to voters in, in Mora County. I checked the uh, the latest numbers from the Secretary of State's office, and 23 folks there have uh, voted absentee early so far, even though they've had to move the county clerk's office from from Mora to Wagon Mound. So um, definitely some committed voters in in Mora County. Um, you know, we look forward to kind of seeing how the the next few weeks play out. Obviously, with the expanded early voting and then the primary election just uh, just over two weeks away on June 7th. It is here, isn't it? And our airwaves are definitely proof of that. Political ads coming fast and furious. Uh, Merritt Allen, Vox Optima, thanks for joining us this week. And again, uh, more election thoughts from you, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I really appreciated uh, New Mexico PBS and the time they spent with uh, the redistricting commission and uh, live, uh, live streaming on Facebook all of those hearings about uh, the new districts. Uh, and I'm an advocate of open primaries so that independents can vote. I really think it's important that taxpayer funded elections be open to all registered voters, especially since declined state voters are the largest growing group of voters in our state. They shouldn't be shut out of primary elections. But at the same time, our elections shouldn't be maybe too open we need uh, our voters to have confidence in our elections. And there is some reporting out of Grant County, uh, both, uh, I would say, from the, the, the left and, and, and the right side that I find concerning. It started last month in the online uh, publication, the Grant County Beat, about the just very, very high voter registration numbers uh, out of Grant County and followed up 
by the Silver City Daily Press. Now, the Grant County Beat is a very uh, conservative publication. Uh, the Silver City Daily Press, uh, I think more, uh, more liberal, both coming out of uh, reporting by the New Mexico Audit Force. Now, uh, and I want to be clear, and I think uh, people know this about me, I think you all know this about me, I'm not an election denier. Um, and I've written previously um, that I think uh, they were the folks behind the Otero uh, County audit, which I have previously ref uh, referred to, and I still characterize as crazy pants. Um, and they are claiming that uh, in Grant County, numbers, registration numbers soared between 2016 and 2020, and that didn't seem right to me. So in my upcoming column, column Shameless Self-Promotion, I looked into this, and it's actually between 1990 and 2004. And it looks to me that Grant County registration numbers have been artificially high since around the year 2000. Yet none of the numbers look right. But as of the 2020 election, 91.9% .9 of eligible voters are registered to vote. And if you consider the 2020 election, and that was a nationwide high with 72.7 of uh, uh, of eligible uh, voters registered to vote, 82.5 in the state. I really want to think that my home county, Grant County, um, citizens really take their civic duty seriously, but I, I don't believe it. And so I, I look more at the numbers, um, just experience, uh, uh, for some firsthand experience following uh, uh, elections there. I'd really like to encourage the uh, Secretary of State, who I think is committed to this, and also perhaps the state auditor, who of course looked into the Otero County audit and made some, I think, important findings about the inappropriateness of that. I really hope they'll look into that because I think uh, in 2022, it's more important that, uh, than ever that voters feel confident uh, when they go in to cast their votes. Agreed there. I just want to make it clear too, are there any uh, confirmed cases of voter fraud in Grant County that you're aware of during that time frame you're talking about? No, no, I mean, I think, and I think it could be a case of purging the voter rolls. I remember, I think in 2008, when the Secretary of State issued voter ID cards, I received two. Um, one for Bernalillo County, where I reside, and one for Grant County, where I'd been originally registered. Um, and uh, that could be the case. But I've seen uh, also uh, my family members who go into monitor absentee ballot, uh, ballot counting um, uh, on election night because my mother was a candidate, um, just huge amounts of ballots coming in and single mail drops. And it seemed, it, it seemed unusual. And the, the way our paper ballots run and the way the machines run, that level of security, the only way you could obtain more ballots would be to have more voters. I don't know that there's anything there, but I think it's I think it's worth looking at. And I think the fact that both publications, the Grant County Beat and the Silver City Daily Press, are raising the question. I think it's time um, our media has done the good reporting. I think it's time for our state officials maybe to go in and take a look at what's happening in Grant County because our voters need some reassurance. I don't think it's a statewide problem, and I certainly don't think the New Mexico audit force numbers should be believed. Yeah, I mean, this is always an important thing, and, and, and I guess it, it, uh, it hurts me a little bit to think that we have to be suspicious about uh, that much voter registration when 
you know, 92 would feel like where we should start everywhere, right? But understand your point there, uh, Merritt, that's not the world we live in. And hopefully, um, yes, that can be looked into and we will keep an eye on that. Uh, and we will leave it there for now for this Facebook Live. Uh, one more thing, but we'll get into the show this week, which of course you can see tomorrow night, Friday at seven o'clock on New Mexico PBS channel 5.1 or Sunday morning at 7 a.m., whichever you prefer, or anywhere online. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just find us wherever you are at. We try to be there too. Thank you guys. Pick it up again in a sec. All right, we'll call that a podcast, but we are already hard at work uh, this week on much more important information and discussion for you, including an update on the PFAS contamination around several of New Mexico's military installations. We have been following for over two years now Art Scop, who runs a dairy farm uh, down near um, Cannon Air Force Base. All of his dairy cattle have been contaminated with PFAS, which means the milk, meat, all of it not viable. And we're going to get an update on what the government's going to do to make that right as we continue to try to hold folks accountable for this contamination that, a reminder, still hasn't been fully mapped or a plan come up with how to remediate the pollution that has already been caused. Also talking about areas around Holloman Air Force Base and a handful of other locations. If you want to learn more about that, you can head to our website, nmpbs.org, and search for Groundwater War for a bunch of great reporting from our land correspondent, Laura Paskus. But that'll do it for us for now. As always, we thank you for listening in. And be sure to stay safe and stay healthy. Until next time. Thank you.